Man in his rebellion against God always wants to concoct his own little means whereby he finds acceptance with God. Man's a rebel. He's in rebellion to God. But religion is inescapable. Religion is inescapable. So man concocts his own little ideas of how he is able to appease God or the gods or a god, how to be in the God's good graces, how to find right staying with it. This is what man does. He concocts his own means. And it can be as crazy as what the Aztecs did with the sun god, killing about 20,000 people a year, human sacrifice. It's about 50 people a day in order to appease the sun god and be in his good graces. Or it could be something as odd as the Kaishen Kung people in China. The Kaishen Kung believe in the emperor of heaven. They believe in a series of demigods, but there's the main god, the emperor of heaven, and once a year they put before his image a platter of rice to feed to the emperor of heaven as a means to have right standing with him, to be found in his good graces. And here in the West, we have our own means, don't we? Man concocts his own ideas here in the West. His idea is that if our good works outweigh our bad works, we're good with God. We'll go to heaven because my good works outweigh my bad works. And the truth of the matter is, that's absolutely false. We will not go to heaven (laughs) because our good works outweigh our bad works. And this thinking within Western civilization is something we can carry into our Christianity. Here's something I used to do when I was young in the faith. I would kneel down and I would say, Father, I come before you through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what I would say with my lips. But in the back of my mind, I had been tallying up how good I had or had not been living. See, I had created this little standard. You know, pray so much each day, witness to so many people, Keep my mind on good thoughts at least 23 hours out of the day. I had concocted this little standard whereby if I felt I kept this little standard, God accepted me. I had right staying with him, but if I didn't keep that little standard, then I had a pity party with him. It was like Protestant penance, you know. I'd feel like God can't use me for three days. Uh, I have to feel blue for three days. Like Christ's finished work at Calvary wasn't good enough. I had to add to the finished work of Christ in order to feel like I was in his good graces. And this, of course, is all crazy. This is all contrary to God's thinking regarding salvation and right standing with him. Turn with me, if you could, to Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55. You remember verses 8 and 9 there? Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways and thoughts higher than your ways and thoughts. And of course, people apply this to any Tom, Dick, or Harry thing on the planet, right? Anytime God's thinking is a little different than their thinking, they immediately point out how God's thinking is different than what their thinking was, and then they quote this verse and say, and of course, the Bible says, God himself said, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. But what is the context in which the Lord says, 
My ways are not your ways. Neither are my thoughts your thoughts, says the Lord. The context is salvation. How we obtain right standing with him. Just look at verse 6 of Isaiah 55. It says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God points to his mercy here, doesn't he? For right standing with him. But that's not good enough for man. And of course, we know his mercy is found in his son, Jesus Christ. That's not good enough for man. He always has to add, he has to construct He has to pillar something in addition to the finished work of Christ. That's just how we are, and we do that even as Christians. We can do that even as Christians. I think we need Jesus plus something else in order to have right standing with God. Jesus himself addressed this matter, by the way. Turn with me to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, and we want to look at verses 9 through 14. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, starting in verse 9. This is a parable that Jesus taught. And it says, Also he, Jesus, spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, sinner. And then Jesus gives the punchline, and he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, when I was a young Christian, I would read this parable, and I was like, It's like Jesus against good works. Why is he dissing good works? I mean, the Pharisee's doing, he's not doing all these bad things, and he's doing all these good things, and yet he's not justified in the sight of God. But the tax gatherer who trusts simply in God's mercy, which we now know is found in Christ, be merciful to me, a sinner, he says, he is justified. So I would be bothered by that, and I would look at that, and I'd be like, it seems like Jesus is against good works. But then I realized the context. Who was he speaking this parable to? Verse 9, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. That's who he spoke the parable to. They were wanting to add to God's mercy in order to have right standing with God. The Pharisee did with his good works, with his tithing of everything that he possesses. He was trying to get into God's good grace, be accepted of God, have right standing with God, based on his good works, rather than simply on the basis of the mercy that is found in Christ for man. And so Jesus concludes, and he says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, speaking of the tax gatherer rather than the other, rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. The Pharisee exalted himself 
and he was humbled in that God did not accept him. And then he goes on here and he says, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The tax gatherer humbled himself. He trusted in nothing more than the mercy of God in order to have acceptance with the Father. And of course we know that mercy is found in Christ. Let's look at another passage. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. And this is the last passage we're going to look at before we get to our text out of Hebrews. But turn to Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. Paul is writing to the Galatians. You remember what he was writing to them about? He was writing to them because these Judaizers had come in and told him Jesus wasn't good enough for right standing with God. You needed to add to the finished work of Christ. You needed Jesus plus circumcision in order to be right, have right standing with God. That's why Paul was writing to the Galatian believers. In fact, he has dire words at the beginning. Look at verse 6 of chapter 1, if you would, of Galatians. Verse 6, chapter 1. He says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. This idea that we need Jesus plus something else, like circumcision, is a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. And then look what he says, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. So he's saying, even if an angel comes down on a cloud and floats in front of you and says it's Jesus plus something else, Jesus plus circumcision, don't believe him. He says, Even if I come back a year from now, two years from now, and try to tell you it's Jesus plus circumcision or Jesus plus something else, consider me accursed, he says. Anathema. This is like a big deal. God has established the means whereby we meet with him. That's a big deal. And we must humble ourselves and approach him on the means and on the basis which he has made, which is found through his son, Jesus Christ, plus nothing. Extremely important. So look what he says here in chapter 2, verse 16. He says, Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. In one verse, he says three times we're not justified by the works of the law, you know, like being circumcised. Three times we're not justified by the works of the law, three times he says we're justified through Christ only. That's what scholars call being emphatic. Paul is emphatic here. Three times in one verse. Three times. You're not justified by the works of the law. You're justified only through Christ. And that is what we must remember. We're justified through faith alone. It's not Jesus plus circumcision. When we do our communion here, we have a liturgy. And in our liturgy, we make clear how this great salvation works. How that it's only through Christ whereby God accepts us because of what Jesus did when he died on the cross. Whether we've been a Christian for five seconds or 55 years, the only means whereby we can meet with the Father is through Jesus. Amen? And we have to remember that. So when we're at his table, we see only two elements there. 
the fruit of the vine representing his shed blood, and the bread representing his body and nothing else. There isn't those two elements plus a list of my good works at his table or a list of my holy deeds at his table. Just those two elements showing it's through Christ alone whereby we're accepted of God. Now the good works that we do, the holy deeds that we demonstrate, those things are the fruit of our saving faith in Christ. They're the evidence of our saving faith in Christ. But what we have to remember is we don't do those good things in order to try and obtain God's acceptance. Rather, we do them because we have obtained his acceptance. This is extremely important to understand. And I want to strengthen your conscience regarding this matter of how we are accepted of God this morning. And I want to do it in kind of an odd way by looking at this passage, our text, out of Hebrews chapter 10. So turn there. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. The scripture reads, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, I used to read this verse, and I was horrified. Because I knew the truth. I had become a Christian. I knew Christ. And I did sin willfully. And the Bible says here, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. And I would close my Bible and say, I'm doomed. And I knew it couldn't be saying that, but I didn't know what it was saying. And what I seemed to be saying seemed to... I was, I was worried. So I want to explain this verse to you. And I want you to see the power of it. And I want you to see the fact that it will strengthen your conscience regarding how you obtain right standing with God, that it's simply through Christ plus nothing. So the first thing we need to do is probably ask ourselves the question, what was the sin the Hebrews were committing willfully? I mean, it says, he says to them, the writer does, for if we sin willfully, that would be the first question you ask in order to do your exegetical work. What was the sin they were committing willfully? Why did the Hebrews, why were the Hebrews written to by this Hebrew writer? By the writer of the Hebrews. It was because they were wanting to go back to Old Testament tabernacle. They were wanting to go back to Old Testament temple. And once again participate in the offering of blood of bulls and goats. That's why he's writing to them. We, we see that as we go through the book. And the writer of the Hebrews gives them dire warnings not to do that. Right from the beginning of the book. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast in every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? This is very dire words. Take heed to the things you've heard, lest you drift away. What was the situation that he was warning them of? They were wanting to go back to Old Testament temple. They were thinking the blood of Christ alone wasn't good enough for right standing with God. They needed the blood of bulls and goats also. Just want to make sure we're all good on this, right? I just want to make sure I'm good on this. 
sure, I believe in Jesus, but yeah, I'm just I'm going to do the blood and bull, bull and goat thing too, just to make sure I'm covered all around, right? They were adding to the finished work of Christ. They were perverting the gospel, and the writer of the Hebrews is warning them. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. More dire words. Chapter 3, verse 12, he says, Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. Wow. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. What was their unbelief? Their unbelief was that the blood of Christ itself wasn't good enough for right standing with God. They needed the blood of Christ plus the blood of bulls and goats for right standing with God. That was their evil heart of unbelief that as we go through the book, we see he is addressing. Look at chapter 4, more dire words. Verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since a promise remains entering his rest... Let us fear or be terrified, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us, as well as it was to them. It goes into some Old Testament imagery then. Why? Because these are Hebrews. These are Hebrew believers. That's why he's using all the imagery of the temple. The whole reason he's writing to them is they want to go back to temple. So he says... Let us fear, lest any of you seem to come short of, for indeed the gospel was preached to us. And even after our text, in summary, we see these same words of warning. Turn to chapter 10, verse 35. Chapter 10, verse 35. Look what the writer says there. He says, therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then in good pastoral fashion, the writer of the Hebrews says, But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. What were they drawing back to? What were they drifting away from? They were drifting away from the gospel, and they were drawing back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. They were thinking the blood of Christ alone wasn't good enough for right standing with the Father, that they needed to add the blood of bulls and goats. Make sure they're covered all around. And we know at this time they could have gone back. Turn with me to chapter 8, verse 13. The book of Hebrews, chapter 8, verse 13. In verse 12, it says, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I'll remember no more. And then the writer says, In that he says a new covenant. He has made the first obsolete. And then look what he says. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It wasn't 70 AD yet. The temple still stood. They could go back to temple. They could join in the sacrificial system of bulls and goats and lambs and all that. They could go back to that. 70 AD hadn't gone. So we know historically they could go back to that. And this is their sin of unbelief. The blood of Christ isn't good enough. We need to add to it with the blood of bulls and goats. They wanted to forsake the assembling of themselves together and go back to temple. So that's the first part 
of verse 26. Go back, chapter 10, verse 26. For if we sin willfully, what was the sin they were committing willfully? Wanting to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system, thinking the blood of Christ wasn't good enough in and of itself. After we have received the knowledge of the truth. What was the knowledge of the truth that they had received? That Christ is the only means of forgiveness of sin that exists. That's the knowledge. It's only through Christ's blood, his finished work that gives us the gospel. That was the knowledge of the truth that they had received. And notice the emphasis in the book of Hebrews on Jesus in like every chapter. And the reason for that is, is because he's building up within these Hebrew believers who Christ is and what he's done for us because they're wanting to go back to the Old Testament sacrificial system. In chapter 1 of Hebrews, the writer talks about how Jesus is God, not an angel. In chapter 2, he talks about how Jesus was human and the incarnation. In chapter 3, he says, consider Jesus. In chapter 4, he says, enter into God's rest through Jesus. In chapter 5, he says, Jesus is our high priest. In chapter 6, he says, Jesus is the anchor of our soul. In chapter 7, he says, Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek. In chapter 8, he says, Jesus has established a new, a better covenant. In chapter 9, he says that the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins, only Jesus. In chapter 10, he's still talking about it, about how the blood of bulls and goats cannot forgive sins, only Jesus' blood can. The whole emphasis is upon Christ. That is the knowledge of the truth that we have received. And so he says here, back again, here in our text, chapter 10, verse 26, For if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, if we go back to temple to do the sacrificial system of bulls and goats, after receiving the knowledge of the truth that Christ is the only means whereby we can obtain right standing with the Father, he says then, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. It doesn't mean you can't be forgiven of your sins. What it means is, Christ is the only means of forgiveness of sin that there is. If you abandon that, you're in a bad place. You're in a bad place. Notice what he says in verse 18 of chapter 10. He's talking about this new covenant in Christ. And he says in verse 18, Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. That's his point. Jesus is the only offering for sin that there is. That's his point. When he says there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Christ is the only sacrifice that there is. Look at verse 6 of chapter 10. He says, In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book that is written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 4, let's start there. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he, Christ, came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume book it is written to me to do your will, O God. Again, the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. Christ does. And Christ alone. 
Verse 8, previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second, this new covenant, which is found in Christ. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. There's no need for these priests to be offering bulls and goats and not with Christ. He did it once at Calvary. It's over with. His blood is efficacious for the forgiveness of sins. The blood of these bulls and goats is not. He goes on in verse 11, And every priest standing, ministering daily, and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man... Talking about Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God, from that time waiting till his enemies are his footstool. There's a whole sermon in that verse. Verse 14, for by one's offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified, but the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he says, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. And then he begins his summary and he says, Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Going back to the bulls and goats ain't going to do anything for you. And then he says in verse 19, therefore. Now whenever you see a therefore, you should see what it's there for. And what it means here is he's now going to give the summary of everything he said in the book of Hebrews up to this point. And here's the conclusion. Here's the summary. He says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Do you know how strong of a term that is? We have boldness, strong confidence to enter in by the blood of Jesus to the holiest. Understand only the high priest could enter into the holiest. Remember, they would kill the bulls or the goats or the lamb. He would put it in a bowl, he would go in, he would sprinkle, dip his fingers in the blood and sprinkle it before the veil seven times before he entered. They actually had a rope tied to his leg. Because if he did something wrong, he'd fall over dead and they'd want to drag his carcass out with the rope because if they went in, they could die too. So he'd sprinkle the blood. He says, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus... We have boldness to enter in where only the high priest could enter before. He's telling these Hebrews believers, you get to meet with God himself, yourself. You don't need this Old Testament sacrificial system any longer. It was all meant to be a picture of the coming Messiah who's now here. Christ, his finished work is complete. He says in verse 20, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us. Talking about Christ, he consecrated this for us through the veil that is his flesh. Again, imagery. The writer of the Hebrews brings up this veil in the temple, which only the high priest could enter into and meet with God. The writer of the Hebrews, pardon me, the Hebrew scholars, the rabbis tell us that that veil was 60 feet high, that it was a hand's breadth thick, that you could put 200 yoke of oxen, tie them to either end, drive them in opposite directions, and it would not tear. That's how strong the fabric was. So understand, nobody came in in the cover of night with a stepladder and some hedge clippers and cut the veil in two. God 
split the veil in two, showing we all now have access to him. And that's what God always wanted, was for each of us to meet with him. Remember way at the beginning after he brought his people out of Egypt, he met with them at the mountain, and there was thunderings and lightnings, and the people said, oh, we don't like that, Moses. You go up and meet with him from now on. That's how man always is. He wants his priest or his minister in order to be an intermediary between him and God. It's, re- it's crazy. God has always wanted to meet with us individually, one-on-one. And now the veil's been written too, and we all can. We can meet with the God of the universe, and yet we spend so much little time meeting with him, which is a striking thing. So he goes on and says, And having a high priest, verse 21, over the house of God, who would that be? Christ. He's already established that back in chapter 8, verse 1, and other places within the book here of um, Hebrews. It says in verse 1, Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. He's talking about Christ. Christ is the high priest. He says this in verse 22 on that basis. He says, let us draw near. Don't draw back. Remember he warns them, don't draw back. He says, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What was their evil conscience that needed to be sprinkled? Again, the imagery of the blood against the veil. Their evil conscience was that the blood of Christ wasn't good enough. It was their sin of unbelief that his blood wasn't good enough that they needed to add to the finished work of Christ. The blood of bulls and goats. Now, I know nobody here is probably trying to get into God's presence through the blood of bulls and goats, right? If you are, wow, you're crazy. (laughs) So, it's like... I don't think anyone is trying to get into God's presence or be right with him through getting circumcised, right? So, but when, when the historical thing isn't exact, we draw out the principle. And what's the principle when it comes to Galatians and being, having Jesus plus circumcision or the principle when it comes to Hebrews having Jesus plus the blood of bulls? The principle is this. Anything you add to the finished work of Christ is wrong. It is through Christ alone whereby you meet with the Father. So he's telling them here, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. It's Christ's blood alone that gives us right standing with God. Look what he says in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why does he say that? Because they were wavering. They were thinking about going back to temple, and they could. 70 AD hadn't come yet, for he who promised is faithful. And then look what he says in verse 24. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. Some were actually already going back to temple. This is the context of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves. It was these Hebrew believers wanting to go back to temple. And the writers said, Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. And then there's the verse, For if we sin willfully, think that we need this blood of bulls and goats after receiving the knowledge of the truth, 
that it's only Christ's blood that gives us right standing with God, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Why? Because Christ is the only sacrifice for sin that there is. That's why. And if you want to go back to that thing, you've put yourself in a precarious situation. In fact, it's a very bad situation because look what the passage goes on to say. But, verse 27, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. This is how big of a deal it is to meet with God on the basis of which he has established, which is Christ alone plus nothing. It's that big of a deal that the writer of the Hebrews says that if you don't do it, a certain fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation is there. <laughs> These are words of warning. Verse 28, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much, verse 29, of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? If you're adding anything to the finished work of Christ, you're adding anything to it. Verse 29 applies to you. If you think it's Jesus plus praying in a certain fashion, or you think it's Jesus plus singing a certain song, or if you think it's Jesus plus concocting your own little standard of goodness like Matt Joella did when he was young in the faith, verse 29 applies to you. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God? You've trampled the Son of God underfoot. You've counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. For them, it was the blood of bulls and goats and insulted the spirit of grace. These are dire words of warning which should encourage you and strengthen your conscience to only approach the Father through the means. You can think you're so right. You know, well, I feel bad about my sin and I've added that to the finish. I felt blue for three. I've done my Protestant penance. I haven't witnessed anybody for three days. It's all rooted in pride. Sounds spiritual. It's all rooted in pride. You have to humble yourself, confess your sin. The scriptures teach he's faithful and just to forgive you. And then you meet with the Father and you get up and you walk. He isn't going to forgive you more because you felt blue for three days. He isn't going to forgive you more just because you didn't witness to anyone for three days because you were going through your Protestant path. It's through Christ that you obtain forgiveness of sin plus nothing. And if you want to add anything to the finished work of Christ, then you have trampled the Son of God underfoot. You've counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and you've insulted the Spirit of grace. And then look what he says in verse 30. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. Again, the Lord will judge his people. If that doesn't motivate you to meet with God through the means which he has provided, I don't know what will. I always found my dad's foot up my rear end as a great motivator to excel. I know we live in this touchy-feely culture nowadays where you got to talk like a fairy, act like a fairy, and smell like a fairy in order to get anywhere with this culture because of the churchmen themselves and the nonsense they've been peddling from their pulpits for years. The ray of the Hebrews is putting his foot up the rear end. He's giving him words of warning and words of dire warning. 
And that should motivate you to meet with God on the basis of which he has established, which is Christ alone plus nothing. Otherwise, you're trampling him under the fo- trampling him underfoot. Counting his blood a common thing. Insulting the spirit of grace. Look what it goes on in verse 31 and said, It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days in which you were illuminated. You endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Don't go back to the Old Testament sacrifice. Don't go back to the blood of bulls and goats. For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise for yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith, but if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then he says in good pastoral fashion, but we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. Powerful words. Powerful. This is our sole means whereby we get to meet with the Father. This through Christ, plus nothing. In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, contained there is the best definition of justification, and I've read many, is the best justification I've ever read. The best definition of justification, I mean to say, that I've ever read. And it states this, Justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. Amen. May Christ be praised. Let's stand up and we'll close in a word of prayer. Father, we give thanks and we give praise to you for this great salvation. We thank you that you have redeemed us, not with corruptible things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we just ask and pray that we would live our lives in service to him who died in our stead. For surely we should have been put to death for our sins, as the wages of sin is death. You and your mercy redeemed us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, you regenerated us, transformed us. You made us new creatures. And just as the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, O oh God, may we live in service to him who died in our stead. May we take the days that you've allotted us and live them to your glory in every aspect, every area of our lives. May we bring your thoughts, your kingdom, your law, your word, to every area of life. Lord, we just ask and pray that you would be glorified through our lives in the days ahead. May we always stand in the covenant and always approach you through Christ, your Son, plus nothing, adding nothing. It is his finished work alone that gives us right standing with you 
accomplished at Calvary. Be glorified, I ask and pray, Father, through our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name.